0: So, I want to invite you to turn to our passage, if you're not there already. It is 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. It's a shorter passage, about five
1: short verses. We'll be
0: following along in the ESV. And as you get there... I want to let you know, in terms of my calling, uh, things have changed. Yeah, uh, the NBA recently contacted me um, and offered me a few million dollar contract to be one of the starters for the Chicago Broncos, <clears throat> I mean, Bulls. And um, so I just decided. I would go with that. I mean, financially, it's good for my family. And um, they said I could be number 23, whatever that means. I don't know. And um, I know that for the pros, I'm not exactly a spring chicken, but I figure that's probably more fair for the other players, right?
1: What do you think about that? Tell me. How does that strike you? Some of you might think, Carrie,
0: you just lied in church. Right? Have you ever heard something like that? Or maybe thought something like that? Like, you just lied in church. Or, son, don't cuss in church. I think comments like this Reveal a common mindset that often exists among believers that God is more concerned with what happens inside the church than he is with what happens outside the church and it goes kind of hand in hand with the perspective that that this book here is a manual and how to how to how to live in the church this tells you how to do church stuff. And we gather on Sunday mornings to learn how to be churchy. And the pastor's job is to get you to be here because that's the whole goal.
1: Don't get me wrong.
0: I love the church. I have fallen in love with the church because God loves the church. And I think we need to emphasize the role of the church. And that was part of our passage. Two weeks ago. And yet at the same time, I think there exists a false division in our minds about inside the church and outside of the church. Like, the Bible helps us navigate inside of the church, but outside of the church? Who knows? Like, what will help us with that? The world, I guess. Right? Right? Imagine if I was a coach, and, I, and when you showed up to practice, I only talked about how to conduct yourself in the locker room and not in the field. Yet the majority of your time is spent out there. And the truth is, the Bible has a lot to say, a lot to say, about how we relate to the world out there. The world in which we live, the world in which we do Real life. The Bible has a lot to say about this, and today is one of many, many passages that addresses this. But even more specifically, it addresses something a little more rare, and that we're going to talk about our role in relating to the government. The Bible does talk about this from time to time, and today is one of the key passages about that. And I think this is something we need to hear because we live in a time where there's a lot of confusion about our relationship to government. I mean, some Christians are fed up with it. Other Christians are enmeshed with it. And some of us, for many of us, it just seems to be a mess. There are caricatures in the media. There is fake news and claims of fake news. And there are a lifetime supply of angry rants on Facebook from both sides. You know, statistics overwhelmingly show that our nation reports being increasingly divided along political lines.
1: So what are we to do about it?
0: How can we walk in the midst of these times faithfully? Because at the end of the day, Whether it was 2,000 years ago or whether it's now, government is a part of our lives. And the Bible has a lot to say about our lives, not just in the church, but outside of the church, in society. So today's passage will help us. First in our relationship to government, and then it will expand out a little bit more to how we relate to society as Christians in general. And to do so, we're going to walk through the what, why, How and who? What, why,
1: how, and who? What what we are to do about government. Why do this? How this is possible?
0: And then who is included? What we are to do about government. Why do this? How this is possible? And who is included. So let's start with the what, found in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 2. This is the what. Let's read.
1: Be subject.
0: Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who who do good. So this is the what? What are we what do we do as believers about government? And these verses start out be subject to it. Be subject to every human institution, in other words, every governing institution from the lowest form of government all the way up to the highest, which for these Christians who were originally the audience that Peter was writing to was the Roman emperor. And he says be subject to it. Boldly, I think we need to be clear on what this means. So let's start out with the, the actual verb itself, be subject. What does that mean? You know, in some places, it literally means to a, attach a document to a document. And I think that's a helpful visual for us. It means to place yourself under something or in line with something. And also, there's a, there's a nuance In this word, that's hard to bring out, but it means do it of your own will. Do it of your own power. No one is forcing you or or coercing you. That's why the Greek dictionary refers refers to it as self-subjecting. It's not someone else stealing your power and subjecting you. It's you voluntarily subjecting yourself. That's why most translations, apart from the ESV, put it like this. Submit yourself. So this is saying, of your own accord, place yourself under the government that is over you. And we have to be careful here. We have to walk this line well, because I think there's two major pitfalls that we need to avoid. Number one is to think... That be subject, place yourself under, means to unquestionably do whatever the government says, period. It would be a mistake to read this command as saying that we unconditionally agree with the government. In other words, if the government says so, do it. No. In fact, I lament the fact that this verse was probably used to denounce the civil rights movement and to promote Jim Crow law. In other words, that people would use it, or misuse it, I should say, to say things like, the government says that you should sit at the back of the bus, therefore you should sit at the back of the bus. No. That makes me sick to my stomach. That's not what this is about. Why? Here's the key. We have to keep reading. It's not be subject, period. It's be subject for the Lord's sake. In other words, it's first and foremost an act of worship to God, or I like how one translation captures it, to please the Lord. So, be subject to please the Lord. So why would we ever subject ourselves to something unpleasing to the Lord as a way of pleasing the Lord? In other words, why would we offer Him an act of worship that is unrighteous or unjust No, if it's something unpleasing to God, we do not have to subject ourselves. That is not a way to please the Lord. In in the book, uh, Letter from a Birmingham Jail, Martin Luther King Jr. quotes Augustine, a famous theologian from the 4th century, who said this, An unjust law is no law at all. So how can we tell if a law is unjust? Dr. King explains an unjust law is out of harmony with the moral law that is the law of God. In other words, if it's out of harmony with God, we don't have to subject ourselves. And secondly, I believe this passage as a whole is calling Christians to support the government in doing its job. We'll get to that in just a second. To be pro-government in that sense and not anti-government. But I think we need to ask... Was Rosa Parks hurting the government, or helping the government, when she refused to move from her seat? I would say helping. Because sometimes we need to disobey or disagree to actually help the government become what it was meant to be. So the one pitfall is to say... Be subject means that I will unquestionably do whatever the government says. Yet the other, the other pitfall that we want to avoid is to say, well, I only have to subject myself to government if, it, if it's in line with God, and because it's never perfectly in line with God, I never have to subject myself. I can just kind of dismiss the whole thing entirely. I, I will only ever stand outside of it and critique it. Besides, that's what's trendy, and I want to be hip like all the other anti-institutional millennials on social media, right?
1: And this is where I think that
0: verse 14 is helpful. It says, governors, in other words, a form of government, are sent to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. In other words, this is describing the basic function of government, We could say it like this. Government, at a bare bones level, has the purpose of promoting the well-being of society. That's what it boils down to. And so Christians are called to get under, to be supportive of, that basic function of government in all of its many forms. In all of the ways that it promotes the well-being of society we got to get under that we got to be champions of that and maybe there's a cynical voice inside of us that says yeah but how is our government pr- promoting the well-being of society there's almost always ways i mean first peter peter is is writing this in the context of the roman emperor nero being Being over the Roman world and yet he still says that in some ways this Roman government is promoting the well-being of society. So even corrupt and imperfect governments can be fulfilling this basic purpose and and you and I, our responsibility is to get on board with that. And so how can we support our government in doing its job and in fulfilling this purpose? I think there's at least three ways. Number one, with our cooperation. So when there are just laws, as Martin Luther King Jr. would say, we yield to them. We make a conscious choice of our own power to willingly subject ourselves to the decisions of our government that promote the well-being of society in general. So one example is street cleaning. Street cleaning is one of the banes of my existence. Inevitably, at least, at least once a year, it will catch me off guard and I will get a parking ticket. I mean, we practically just have to work it into our budget. It's going to happen. And yet, if they didn't give tickets for not moving your car, how many of us would actually move our cars? We wouldn't do it. So this is actually a way of promoting the well-being of society because our streets would be filthy if they didn't do it. Now you might say it's like a little bit high. Whatever. In general, it's helping the good of society. And so i pay that parking ticket or taxes. Some of you are, are a libertarian in the house today. Um, but I have news for you. Our government is not. And so, listen, we probably all have different perspectives on how the tax system could be improved. But at the end of the day, it's not unjust. And so we yield to it. Pay your taxes and don't try to be sneaky. So, so one way we help our government do its job is with our cooperation. And the second way is with our voices. And admittedly, this is a little... This is, this is less important than our actual physical cooperation. But I think there's a place for it. Because it's one thing to kind of like begrudgingly cooperate. It's another thing to give our voices to what is good. In other words, when the government does well, to say it. And that means that if I'm here on the political spectrum, that I should be able to commend what is good on this end of the political spectrum. And if I'm on this end of the political spectrum, I should be able to commend what is good on this end of the political spectrum, whether it's national government or local government. We use our voices. So our cooperation, our voices, and thirdly, our prayers. Uh, I, I once heard it said that I'm wishing that any president... Would fail is like wishing that the airplane that you are on will crash. Because at the end of the day, this is the country that we are in. And we want to pray that those who are leading it in all the different forms would have wisdom. Would have, would have wisdom in leading this country and it's not just national leaders, but also local-level leaders, because we know that their decisions have, a sig- have significant impact on the way we live our lives. So we want to cover them in prayer, and in fact, we are commanded to do so. We're commanded in Scripture to do so. And it, and it just so happens that this Thursday, uh, we'll be gathering partly to do just that, to pray for various forms of government, whether it's national or or local-level government, that they would have wisdom in the decisions that they make. And so I want to encourage you to come out. I mean, if at all possible, I'd like for us all to be there. And we won't be just praying for government. We'll also be praying for this community where God has placed us, and also for our church in general. So I I just want to encourage you to be there as a way of putting some of these principles to practice. So with our cooperation, with our voices as appropriate, and with our prayers. And again, I'm not saying that we agree with everything, but even when we disagree to do so with honor, look at the, uh, the very last sentence of this passage. It says, honor the emperor, not agree with everything he does. I mean, Emperor Nero. Peter is writing this about Emperor Nero, and Emperor Nero was part of the conspiracy to have his uncle killed, which is how he became emperor, and then he became suspicious of his actual mother that she had a plot against him. So uh, he he had his own mother killed, and then his son-in-law was in line to be next in line for the throne, and so he actually had his son-in-law killed. Peter is not saying agree with all those things or get behind With all those things, no. But there's a principle here that even when we disagree, we do so with honor. And I think that's something that marked the civil rights movement that even in their civil disobedience, they did so with dignity and honor. And I think this is where the context of this passage is helpful. How do we maintain a fair, balanced perspective when our nation is becoming increasingly divided politically? What's a Christian to do? So the whole context of this passage, in fact, pretty much the whole context of chapter 2 and chapter 3 starts in verse 11 of chapter uh, of chapter 2. Let's take a look. It starts out like this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. In other words, for the whole rest of chapter 2, for most of chapter 3, everything Peter is about to say comes under that context. It's given to us as sojourners and exiles. Every command that we hear is carried out as sojourners and exiles. In other words, as people who don't quite belong here. And this is why I think this is helpful. Because as Christians, if we are exiles... If we don't quite belong to this world, then we will never quite belong to any political party of this world. And so that means that we should never act as if there's zero disagreement between us and any political party. As if it's a perfect fit. As if there are never lines of discontinuity. Because it will never be a perfect fit. Because political parties are of this world. Maybe to your surprise, your political party did not descend down from heaven as a gift to this world. No, it's a creation of this world, a world in which we as Christians don't quite belong. And that means as exiles, all of a sudden we have a unique capacity to not be owned by political parties or particular politicians. We can stand outside of them. And speak to the ways that they are either hurtful or helpful. That's an opportunity that we have. We don't have to feel like we need to always run to the defense of our team. There was an extremely interesting and somewhat disconcerting study once held. Uh, the researchers took college students and had them smell sweaty T-shirts and then recorded their response. Uh, college students will almost do anything for money. So the researchers had them smell these sweaty t shirts and, and then they like took notes on their response. And what they noticed is fascinating. If the t shirt had the logo of their college team, their reactions were more tolerant, were more permissive. They did not react as strongly. It's almost like they, um, gave a little bit more leeway to their team. And I think it speaks to a human tendency to run to the defense of our teams. And we do that with our political teams sometimes, don't we? As exiles, we might align somewhere in the political spectrum, and that's fine, but we need to understand that we do not belong to that team. And this gives us an incredible opportunity at this time and place in our country. In his book, Christians in the Age of Outrage, Ed Stetzer says this, When we understand that many Western nations are incrementally moving towards greater political polarization, we recognize a significant opportunity for Christians. As the world divides along strict party lines, the church can overcome and transcend these inferior identities. After all, group identities of the left and right will not prove as captivating as a community built around faith. In other words, at a time when our nation is so politically divided, Christians have a unique opportunity to rise above political lines and bear witness to something much greater and far more beautiful that unites us, the love of God and the power of the gospel. I think of Simon... The zealot and Matthew, the tax collector. They were both part of Jesus' original 12 disciples, and they could not have been further apart politically because the zealots were literally leading revolutions against the Roman Empire. And on the other hand, tax collectors were seen as sellouts to that Roman Empire. They worked for the Roman Empire. They benefited the Roman Empire. They could not have been more opposite politically. I mean, far more than Democrats and Republicans. And yet they worked side by side for the kingdom. Why? Because their relationship to Jesus was stronger than their relationship to Rome. May the same be true for us. And in that, I believe, we will be able to winsomely and honorably and justly subject ourselves to the government that is over us. So that's, that's the what. What to do about government as believers and the why is found in verse 15. Let's read. it. By the way, that was the biggest chunk of this sermon. We're going to run at a little bit quicker pace for the rest of these points. This is the why. Verse 15. For this is the will of God that by, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Okay. So we've seen what to do about government and now why. Why do this? And verse 15 tells us because Christians are called to live good lives. That's what it says. That's why the line of thought goes like this. Relate well to government because as Christians, you are called to live good lives and relating well to government is part of that. It's pives. And yet it's not the whole thing. Most scholars agree that with this verse, Peter's kind of expanding his application beyond government, which is a part of living good lives, but he's expanding it to the way we live in society. That we should do That we should do good in a way that benefits the society around us. In fact, that we should be known for it. The word here could literally be translated do-gooders. We are to be people whose lives are characterized by doing good. Look at the beginning of verse 15. I think this is powerful. It starts out... For this is the will of God. Stop.
1: For this is the will of God. Do you ever wonder,
0: what's God's will for us as a church? What does God want from us? How does God want us to live as a church? This verse helps answer the question. I mean, it's not the full answer, but it it helps answer the question. God's will is that as a church, we would have such a reputation for doing good that even if people disagree with us, at the end of the day, they'd be like, Nah, but those, those, those people are good. Those people do good in society. That's part of God's will for us as a church. I'm not saying that's the whole thing. But that's God's will for us as a church. And so if we're not doing that, we're not doing God's will. It's about simply doing good. And as believers, our lives are never devoid of the gospel. But his will is that we simply do good in society. Why? Because what good is it to say I love you if we don't show I love you? So the church is called to be known for doing good. And this will be significant. Um... For, for our impact before the watching world. I, I, think, of, um, I think of a story about Mother Teresa. Uh, it was during Bill Clinton's administration uh, while he was president, and he had Mother Teresa come to, to one of his breakfasts. It was a presidential breakfast, and he had her speak. And while she was speaking, she actually denounced some of his um, policies that promoted... Um, more abortion to take place. So she said that, and then she sat down, and then it was his turn to talk. So he stood up, and he looked out, and he said, it's hard to argue with a life well lived. You know, when people argue against the church, may they be able to say, it's hard to argue with a life well lived. That's part of what Peter is saying here. He's saying this is a way that some of the false claims will be silenced. And during Peter's time, people were claiming that the church was anti-society. And so Peter is saying, no, show with your lives that you are for society. And so that leads us to ask, as a church, are we for the society around us? Are we for this community? Are we for society? Yes, it's full of sin, but it's also full of people. People who are so, so, so infinitely precious to God. So are we for this community? Like I said a few weeks ago, I think there's some awesome things going on through this church. Yet at the same time, I think that we can grow in our reputation for doing good in this community. To be known as people who actively benefit the society around us. For this is the will of God. And just like it just so happens that uh, we are gathering for prayer on this Thursday, it just so happens that this Saturday we are gathering to to serve the community, to just come together and clean up simply that as a way of doing good in this community. So I want to encourage you, if you can, to come out 10 a.m. on Saturday. And I'm not saying that this is how we'll check off this on our box and say, okay, we are for this community, but this is one of many ways that we can further embrace this calling As a church. So that's the why. Why do we relate well to governments in the first place? Because we're called to live good lives. This is the will of God. So that's the what, the why, and now verse 10 explains the how. Let's read.
1: Chapter 2, verse 16.
0: Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Okay, so we've been told to relate well to government and to do good in society, but how are these things possible? Verse 16 starts out, live as people who are free. That's how we do it. Live as people who are free. And, and, and we need to ask, how are we free? It's talking about the freedom that we have as believers, the freedom that comes from embracing the gospel, what what Jesus has done for us in his death and resurrection, and how that flows into our lives when we embrace him by faith. And all over the New Testament, it talks about how Jesus redeems us. In other words, how he sets us free. So free from what? Free from the power of sin, but also free Free from all the endless cycles of trying to earn our salvation, trying to prove our worth, trying to justify our existence, trying to defeat our shame, trying to find our identity, and on and on and on. And at the cross, all these cycles were broken, and we can be free. Yes, it's a freedom that we take hold of more and more as we journey through our our walk of faith, but it's a freedom that is ours. So, wait. What does this have to do with relating well to government and doing good in society? It frees us to do these things more fully, to do them without hindrance. For example, in terms of government, if we're politically captive to a certain party and finding our identity in that, then it's harder to relate well to government as a whole. Like I said, we might feel the need to always run to the defense of our own party or particular politician. But if we're free in Jesus, if our identity is in him, then we know that we are not ultimately owned by any party, but free to relate well to government across the spectrum with honor. It means we are free to willingly subject ourselves, even when it's not our party or preference or political leader. And in terms of doing good in society, for example... If we're trying to if we're, if we're trying to prove our worth at work and stuck in that cycle then we might end up working too much and have little time to serve others. Or if we're trying to find our worth from acceptance, then we might be content to just have tight relationships with our little circle here, but not look outside to society and how we can be a benefit to society. Or if we're trying to get more money or get more things, we might be so focused on that that we forget to give away, to do good with our time and our money towards others. Or if we're trying to justify our existence with our achievements, we might tell ourselves, I'll start to serve as soon as I accomplish that next thing. Then I'll start to serve. Then I'll have time. But you get that next thing, and then there's another thing, and then there's another thing. Y- you know, y- you graduate, and you're like, okay, as soon as I graduate, I'll start to serve. But then right after you graduate, you're like, I have to find that big job. And then after you find that big job, you're like, well, I gotta really, really got to knock that big project out of the park so I can keep that big job. And on and on. And on from one achievement to the next. It's an endless cycle, and it often makes it harder to serve. So I'm not saying that these things stop us from serving, but that they make it harder. It reminds me of this um jogging stroller that Lisa and I have. It's ginormous. I don't know if if you've never seen it, you really need to. I call it a Buick because it's it, it weighs a lot and it's not aerodynamic like a Buick. And, um, sometimes we run with it, or we'll train for a long run with it, like miles and miles, and maybe even Zoe is inside of it, and it's like pushing 50 pounds while you're running. And then maybe, um, Debbie Runquist, who attends this church, will come along and, and watch the girls, and we'll get to run without of it, without it, and it's like, it's like a world of difference! It's like we're running free, we're running full stride with no hindrance! And that's what I'm talking about here. That's the freedom we have in Jesus, that we could do these things full stride and without hindrance, really able to lean into these areas of relating well to government and doing good in society. Because we have to ask, free to do what? Free to do what? And here's where a really interesting paradox, I think, comes in. Look at the rest of of this verse. It says, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. In other words, not as an excuse for serving yourselves, but living as servants of God. In other words, we are free to be servants. And it might seem like a paradox, but it's not. We are free to serve God, living how he as our creator meant us to live. We are free to be who we are made to be. And to feel the joy of that. There's nothing like doing what you were meant to do and to really thrive in that. I mean, that's freedom. It's not freedom to do whatever we feel like. No, that's slavery all over again. That's slavery to our own individual impulses and desires. And anyone who's been there will tell you that is slow death. No, true freedom is freedom to be who we were made to be, freedom to serve God. And if we're serving God, you better believe we will serve others. So that's really... The centerpiece of this passage how can we relate well to government and do good in society live as people who are free if you don't hear anything else from this message this morning I want you to hear live as people who are free and that's how this is possible that's the how and lastly quickly we'll mention the who not the band uh, but the sermon point who it's found in verse 17 so let's read
1: Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Okay.
0: So we're free to serve. But serve who? That's the question. In other words, who is included? This verse tells us, short answer, everybody. Serve everybody. And then it walks us through very succinctly how specifically to serve the different categories of everybody. So number one. Honor everyone, it says. In other words, serve everyone, all persons in society, with honor. And like I said before, notice how this same word is used of the emperor. Treat everyone with the honor of being made in the image of God, regardless of how much you disagree. Everyone was made with infinite worth and was loved so much that God gave his only son. So we treat people like that. And you know what? I think it's much easier to be disrespectful online than it is face-to-face. If only this principle would guide our interactions on Facebook and Twitter and email. I mean, you are, you are totally free to disagree, but you don't have to be a jerk about it. And this also applies when someone in a car cuts us off in traffic. Just because they are in a car doesn't mean that they cease to be human beings made in the image of God and precious to him. And it also applies to the other, to the person on the other end of the phone at a call center. I worked a call center job before, and it was the worst job in my life. I mean, people would just unload on me. And uh, it got to the point where I started um, answering the phone with a southern accent. Number one, because I was bored. And then number two, I thought it would maybe soften people with that southern kindness. It didn't. It did not work. People would unload on me. And if you would have told me that guy was a Christian, I'd be like, what? No. All right, where am I? One scholar talking about this verse said this. Christians should be courteous and respectful to all people. And then he quotes someone else saying, this principle condemns much of people's treatments of others, both in the political and industrial world. I mean, just think, if we as Christians truly lived this way, I think it would do a lot for our witness. Christians are courteous and respectful to all people. Okay, second Second way of serving, love the brotherhood. We serve other believers by treating them with the love of a close-knit family. That's what the word brotherhood implies. And I believe that when we love one another well in here, it spills out empowering us to love all people around us well. And one thing I love about this verse is notice how you don't have to choose to either serve society, honor everyone, or serve the church love the brotherhood. It's both. So it's saying, don't, the implication is don't retreat like a club as this closed community or island as a church so that you're detached from society on the one hand. And on the other hand, don't be so engrossed in society that you forget to gather as the people of God and love one another. It's both. We need both. So lastly, fear God. We serve God by fearing Him. And we need to know that fearing Him does not mean being afraid of Him. It means placing Him, giving Him the highest value in our lives. That's reverence. I'll I'll take this pen. Ask me to carry a vase or a vase from the Dollar Tree. And I might walk around with it. I might, like, throw it up in the air and spin it, try to catch it, and bring it to you. But ask me to carry an ancient... um, one-of-a-kind Ming Dynasty Chinese vase from a French art museum, and I will carry it differently. I will carry it with a certain carefulness and intentionality, recognizing its precious
1: value. That's what fear is.
0: That's how we are to treat God, not careless with him, but intentional and placing on him the highest value in our lives. And I actually think that helps wrap up this whole passage. Because to these original Christians, the Roman emperor would have been saying, fear me, fear Caesar. But Peter says, no, honor the emperor just like you would any other normal person in society. But don't fear him. Fear God. And when we fear God, government is put in its place so we can relate to it well. It's not our God. And when we fear God, society is put in in its place as people made in His image and precious to Him whom we honor and the church is put in its place as brothers and sisters whom we serve. So who do we serve? Short answer, everybody. Serve all people with honor. Serve fellow believers with family-like love and serve God by fearing Him. So I want to call the band To come up, and as they start to come up, what do we do as believers about government? We willingly subject ourselves to it, avoiding the two main pitfalls of either following it too much or following it too little. And why do we do this? Because it's included in God's will for us to live good lives, doing good in the society around us. How is this possible? By living as people who are free, being free to serve. And who do we serve? Who is included? Everybody. So just as a way of, of reflecting on this, some of, some of this passage, the principles in this passage, um, I'd like to lead us through four questions. And um, I'd like for you to just be able to take a moment to reflect on these and, and see how they might apply to you. So number one, How can you improve your relationship to government? Have you fallen into one of the pitfalls? And number two, are you indeed for this community? How can you be a part of this church doing good? Number three, do you need God's help to live more free in an area of your life in order to serve? And number four, Are the ways God can help you grow in being courteous and respectful to all people, loving other believers like family, and fearing God?
1: Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your help, thankful for your leading, thankful for your word.
0: And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be able to um, walk through the midst of these confusing times faithfully. God, I pray, Lord, that you would, Lord, that you would all the more help us to be for the community that's around us. I pray for wisdom in how we relate to our government. God, I pray that we would be free all the more free as believers people who are set free by jesus that you would help us with that areas of our life where we might not be fully taking hold of the freedom that was bought for us at the cross that we'd be able to take hold of that and lord that you would lead us in in our relationships with the different categories of of persons around us lord god help us we need you we need you lord and i pray for your leading